0: Thanks for thanks for waiting. The suspense. Allow me to reintroduce our distinguished guest, uh, Rick Rentschler, who is the Arthur Kingsley Porter Professor of German Languages and Literatures at Harvard University, and the author of numerous books and articles about German cinema. So, to begin, how does Fury exemplify the work of a direct o- director in exile?
1: Well, um, I think it's it's a simple answer on one level, insofar as we have scenes that uh, actually even inscribe the notion of foreigners in Germany, foreigners of the barber who knows the Constitution, for instance, better than Americans. Um, But I think uh, what strikes me above all here in terms of talking about this as an exile film is the kind of disaffection and distance and the uh, dismay that one regards American culture in a way that can only be a function of someone seeing it from the outside, seeing it from a from an altogether unfamiliar perspective. And I, I think, you know, at one level you could argue, well, what Long is doing in this film is taking the trauma he suffered in Germany, taking the experience of fascism and imposing it on America. Um, I, I think, And that's been said an awful lot in the secondary literature. Uh, I think you can go much further than that, though. I mean, this is a film that makes it very clear. It it comes out of a country, for instance, in which, uh, let us say, Sinclair Lewis wrote a novel just about the same time, It Can't Happen Here, about the potential for fascism in America. You have a great amount of discussion in America about the way in which Nazi racism is very much, let us say, in keeping with a lot of American racism. As a matter of fact, there are some some voices on the left that are arguing that um, fascism is ultimately racism. Um, I I think to get back to your question, there is a way in which this is a film about an exile who may well be, in a sense, transposing his own experience on America, but at the same time, he's disclosing, I think, certain potentials in America that I think are in the mind of many Americans. So, In a curious way, he's both working from the outside and yet on the inside. Um, uh, Just to further talk a little bit more
0: about uh, Fritz Lang as both a German and uh, director in Hollywood, Fury has been described as an American version of M, Fritz Lang's 1931 film about uh, a child murderer in Berlin. Both films contain trials and pseudo-trials and both suggest that the judicial, judicial system is not to be trusted. Finally, both uh, films reflect on the hysteria, hysteria of gruesome um, murder cases and, that were ripped from the headlines. How would you compare these two films, or even more broadly, the similarities and differences between Long's American and German films?
1: Let me start with the, the, the tail end of that question, because it's a large question. I mean, is the Fritz Long who makes films in America, the same director who made films in Germany. I mean, when you think about the German Fritz Lang, he makes these monumental films, these grand films that are crafted in studios, and he's got casts of thousands in some cases, if you take Metropolis. Um, he's got you know uh, monumental architecture. I mean, these, these, these craftsmen at his disposal, I mean, truly very, very gifted artists and artisans. And and yet, through it all, he's the guiding force, and and in in Weimar cinema, you know, the director enjoys a power that one does not enjoy in Hollywood, where it really is producer-driven. So, I mean, one way in which people typically talk about long in America is as a lesser long. I mean, the very famous um, film theoretician and and film formalist, Noel Birch writes very eloquent, and and utterly compelling uh, analyses of the German films, and goes on to say that the American films simply are compromised, and they're lesser lungs, to repeat myself. I mean, insofar as he is at the beck and call of a studio system, at the beck and call of producers, he's really not in the position of power that he enjoyed, as a German director and beyond that, you know, he's at the beck and call of a certain kind of narrative system that insists, for instance, on uh, happy endings. It insists on the, the heterosexual couple as being the point of focus and, and in a number of ways, then he's not able to make the films that he was able to make in Germany. That's, that's one fix. I would call it the, the, the Birch syndrome. Um, I think subsequently, And I think this is particularly the case among the French auteurists, people like Francois Truffaut. When they saw the films that Lang made in America, after they became available in France, they argued that this was still a master, that he may not, let us say, his signature is a bit hidden. That it's, it's not as uh, clearly legible as it is in the German films, but it's there. And it's there in very interesting and compelling ways. And I think American auteurists, you know, um, in the wake of the French ones, like like A- Andrew Serres, you know, argued, well, actually, this this is someone who is, act, you know, really proof of how auteurism somehow makes sense that under the most com- compelling and compromising situations that your signature as an artist can still somehow be legible. So that, you know, getting back, if you compare M and Fury, there, is, there are, as you suggest, Patrice, I mean, a number of carryovers here. And actually, think about even the opening sequence of the film we saw tonight. I mean, standing at the store window, right? That store window becomes that, that, that well, you know, what is it essentializing in a way the American dream? And if you think about the scenes in front of shop windows that you get in M, or this massive play of desire at work here, and a frenzied desire in some case with the murder, the murderer, um, you know, looking in on the streets. But the store window then becomes this kind of privileged site here of, let us say, the dream of a future, the dream of a couple, the dream of a happy home, and that. that Already, you know, Long is taking these kinds of privileged spaces. He's refurbishing them in the American situation, right? He's refurbishing them for the American dream, for the heterosexual couple, and and for that kind of, uh, you know, romantic manifest destiny that they're they're hoping for. There's a scene at the end of the film where you see Kirby running out of the court and is stopped by Joe coming in, you know, very much in keeping with Peter Lorre, running out of the kangaroo court. Um, and then stopped as well. You, you, you have the, you have the defense attorney speaking very strongly and very moralistically. Um, You have, in a sense, another, another attorney in the kangaroo court speaking every bit as, uh, as, as moralistically. I mean, there are all of these rhymes here. And I think the main thing though is, Long is having to deal with a couple of things that he's not particularly interested in. I think identification for Long was never his strong suit. Um, if you, you take a film like M, who do you identify with? I mean, it's not a film about identification. It's a, that, that's driven by identification. It, it, it's driven by information, and it's wired remarkably. It's wired very tightly. But it, it, it doesn't function, and in the same way, there's no romantic couple that binds a film like N. There, there's no romantic couple in, in, in a number of Long's films. I mean, there are in some, you know, in, in, in Destiny, surely in um, The Nibelung um, to a certain degree in, in Woman on the Moon. But I think the kind of romantic coupling is, is, is something that really doesn't interest Long here. And I think it's something that he really grapples with in this film in interesting ways. What, what do you make of the switch um, that in M, we have a criminal who's
0: portrayed as an average guy, whereas in this film, we have an average guy who becomes
1: criminal? Yeah. No, I mean, well, look, I, th- I think in both cases, you know, you've got that notion, that German notion, that really preponderant one of the double. That is to say, when, when the child murderer at the end of M sort of does his memorable speech, he talks about that voice inside of him and there is that sense that he's, he's clearly possessed. He's haunted. And in a sense, some, something else is in him. And in a certain way, this is what we have with Joe. He becomes, he becomes, well, let's say it He becomes a monster. And I think when we see him return, there's this lovely scene where he's at the doorstep and the lighting has him, you know, altogether shrouded in darkness. He appears exactly as Krimhild does at the start of Krimhild's Revenge, when she is going to um, essentially uh, take those who are guilty for the death of Siegfried to task, right? But it's the same sort of marker there. And of course, also M is
0: set in a city. Here we're in kind of somewhere in the Midwest. And I just think it's interesting in the American context that it starts out that in fact, you know, Joe Wilson is American everyman who's brought
1: to this dark side. Right. I I mean, the original script actually called for Joe Wilson to be a lawyer. But um, it was very clear that in order to make him an everyman, you had to somehow... um, Position him on, uh, at the lower end of the of a class station, um, but I think there's also something really important there that um, not too many people talk about. If people talk about this as a film about lynching, if people talk about this film as part of a so-called social trilogy that Long makes, that is to say, you only live once, um, right after, and then a couple of years later, you and me, as a, as a, as films, very much. Um, bound up in kind of social dynamics. I think this is a film very much about the depression. And, and the, the depression here is, it's present in pretty interesting ways. Um, when, when the brother at one point says, the people don't have it very good. There's, there's also, but I, I think more than that, you take us back to that shop window take us back to the enforced separation. Why is that, you know, the case? Well, it's the case because this couple doesn't have the financial wherewithal to somehow to be together. They have to be separated for a year. And in a way, Joe is, well, I would say even emasculated insofar as I mean, notice the scene with the ring. The man is typically the one who gives the woman the ring. It's the other. And here we have, you know, Henry to Catherine, Catherine to Joe, you know, in a sense, he is positioned in a, in a, you know, in a feminine role here, and I think, I think this is all sort of seen. It's in keeping with a kind of depression dynamic wherein, you know, masculinity was very much, I think, um, very much under siege because of financial conditions and and the film adds that extra ripple here of having a woman who actually is in a way running the show saying we can't be together and for these good reasons. Yeah, I have some
0: thoughts about that. She is the teacher, she is the moral center, Um, but I wanted to just as much as this is a film as you said it's a very much a film of its time. It's a depression era film, but it's also a film that really over the years has stayed has been really important to critics um, for its uh, representation of technology and media. Uh, Dare I say fake news? I mean, um, I can remember... And, and of course, the presence of the newsreel crew, the news film um, that is taken, has a lot of scholars have picked up on this to say, I mean, really, if we think of the film as being divided and we have the lynching and the burning of the jail, and then we have the trial. So, you know, there's kind of law and order to borrow from another example. Um, so in the, but the the role of technology and media, some have said, well, all the gossiping, it's this oral traditions that it, we see in the beginning as, as this news begins to circulate and the claims of how much money was found and all these sorts of things is all through an oral tradition, which isn't an entirely true. There's newspapers, there's uh, uh, telegrams, there's um, but, of course, the, when the, when the uh, news crew, when the film, I mean, this is what really cinches it. Now, maybe in the, in the 90s, I can remember critics talking about Fury in relationship to the Rodney King uh, trial, because, as you may recall, many of you, um, that there was a certain portion missing from the footage that was initially aired on television, and this led to the second trial of Rodney King. And they say, in Fury, what we have here is the same. Are, are we to believe in the veracity of the, the film image, because in fact, we know when they're filming it, they, they, they run out of uh, film, they have to reload it, we know that it's taken from a particular point of view. That's how people talked about this film for a long time. But what has struck me watching it in the wake of Charlottesville and, um, and Facebook is that it kind of represents a sort of social media and a kind of way inciting of a mob and even to the fact where, you know, Kirby Dawson in close-up, you know, some of the, many of you, I'm sure, on Facebook, where various marchers were identified in close-up on Facebook to out them for being part of this, this mob. So I'm just wondering what, you, what, you, what your take is on the role of technology and media uh, in this really
1: self-reflexive film. Yeah. I think the most interesting thing for me about Fritz Long is that he is a consummately visual person, who is essentially, you know, suspicious about the power of images and about the power of the media. That um, his films, in their eloquently, you know, crafted way, become well, be- become very interesting exercises in proving, in, 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 in disclosing the power and the abuse power of the media. And I think, you know, in a sense, if you talk, you were talking about the different media we have here, we have newspapers, we have photographs, radio. we have the radio, and obviously we have um, the moving image. Um, and it's, it's, it's it, you know, if something similar, I mean, going back to M, you know, we we, you remember the opening sequence of the film, it's very, it it, it ends obviously with this off-screen murder of young Elsie Beckmann, and then we have this very interesting transition where from the balloon that's on the telegraph wires, the telegraph wires are signaling some some sort of uh, lines of communication, we see that a news newsboy running down the street with a a screaming, extra ausgabe, extra ausgabe, the murder has become the grist for the morning news. It becomes the day's sensation that is being hawked to the masses. Um, I think what is there, there are lots of things that are interesting here. But let us take, for instance, the the, the in talking about long suspicion about images, um, the inscribed news camera here. Um, these are obviously not uh, these are mercenaries, right? Um, and they're technicians as well. you know the two inch lens is important. But think back to the scene in the courtroom when the footage from the news camera is actually shown. What is striking there is there are a number of angles that are simply impossible in terms of the news camera that we see inscribed here. So Long himself is fudging. Um, But fudging, I think, in a very compelling way. We get low angle shots that are simply, you know, not thinkable from that camera that is coming out of a hotel balcony, right? Um, There is a way in which the images that are meant to prove the, you know, um, prove that a crime has taken place and in a sense catch the perpetrators in the act. These images, in a sense, are a form of fake news in, in terms of, you know, the, 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 the evidence that Lung himself is, is marshalling, is doctored. Um, so that someone who actually doesn't trust images is in a sense creating images that aren't to be trusted. And as spectators though, we're taken in by these doctored images. Right, I mean, that's, it's, it's a really striking thing. It's not something you necessarily catch the first time around. Well, maybe you did. Maybe you're smarter than I am. But um, there, is a, there is a way in which um, this happens again and again in the cinema of Fritz Lang, that you simply don't trust the media. You don't trust images. Um, you, you, you surely don't trust the audiences that partake of them. And I think in that regard, there's a very, very close connection between the Fritz long who lived in Southern California in exile and the TW Dorno, who was a friend of Long's who wrote dialectic enlightenment, who wrote about the culture industry and about the deformative power of the culture industry. And in a sense with, with an inordinate suspicion about the regressive power of what these sights and sounds can do. I mean, Here's someone who's trying to make a career as a filmmaker in Hollywood, but he's trying to make films that are in a sense calling into question the power of film. I mean, it's 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 a really interesting dilemma, and I think that's why I think Fritz Long, who was doing the same thing in Germany, actually in interesting kinds of ways, that's why he, he he's he's not a compromised filmmaker when he's in America, and actually he becomes in different ways a very interesting one.
0: Well, as you, as we've been talking, you know, M and Fury ripped from the headlines, you know, based on a lot of things that were in the news. Um, and you're talking about, you know, Fritz Lang being very um, critical of mass media, but you also describe the news crew as a vig- kind of a vigilante group. And what struck me on seeing the film this time was how, you know, it's like when you would, when we read historically um, and contemporary about lynchings and crowds that would form, and it was a form of entertainment. And of course, you know, the news, met, it starts in the, in the bar. Let's have some fun and, you know, good old American fun where we can go, you know, bash some heads and, and um, set something on fire. And then we see the same kind of reaction as, I, as the, the news crew. It's like, yeah, oh, we got a good shot. We've got it, you know, and they're, they're watching this horrific violence. Um, and so and with the same kind of entertainment charge. And then, of course, it's Joe Wilson. He's listening to The Trial on the radio and, and loving it, you know? Hearing everything that's... So there is this kind of indictment of the audience for,
1: at every level. Yeah. There's a really interesting moment, I think, where the audience is indicted. When Joe says, um, I went to the movies and I watched it 10 or 20 times, myself burning. And the crowd loved it. Right. Mm-hmm. So that the crowd in the movie loves the scenes of him being burning. And by implication, the crowd in the cinema watching this film, Fury is somehow implicated in that statement. I mean, uh, that, and, and, and there are ways in which I think the, the scenes of mass contagion there, you know, in a sense, implicate us as spectators too. the kind of sadistic drive of this crowd, the sadistic frenzy that we get there, um, in a certain, certain way it becomes the kind of visual uh, I, I, the, the, the visual uh, stuff that somehow makes this so compelling as a film and the spectacle so utterly I mean gripping, right? So that I mean Long is I think very very clear in the way that he there's also a moment where Joe is making a grand indictment and, he's, and it's unlike a lot of Hollywood films. He's looking directly into the camera, that is to say, directly at us, right, as spectators. I mean, again and again, I mean, Lung is not making it easy on the spectator. Um, and in a sense, uh, that, is, that is a bit of a risk for a film that wants to be terribly commercial and wants to somehow appeal to a mass audience when you're, in a sense, problematizing the very audience that's partaking of what you're making. Well, speaking of that, I just want to switch registers
0: a little bit um, and talk about the film's representation of of race. And it's interesting, as I was preparing for today, and I have been preparing long before today, but I came across some new things today that I hadn't seen, more recent scholarship that takes up this question of the film's representation of race. Now, uh, so what what I initially wrote to ask you was that Although Lang focuses on Joe Wilson, a white American everyman, his story about lynching and mob violence is also and fundamentally about race in America. The most revealing appearance of the suppressed subject, the black lynching, occurs several times in the film. To take one example, when Joe's lawyer, the DA, speaks of the 6,010 lynchings in 40 years in the United States. Uh, It's not a secret to anybody who is watching the film that the majority of these were racially motivated. Um, So there's been a long, I I think I've read over years about the film's representation of race, um, and one of the main views is that that Lang wanted to make a film about lynching in America, that he was quite shocked when he came and traveled and looking for subjects for his first American film, and just witnessing lynching in the American South and wanting to make a film about that, which of course, and so the story, at least the production code administration, this was not going to be allowed. And so, and Spencer Tracy had the role from the beginning. Um, but it always struck me in various passages, and I don't need to recall all of them for you. But you know, there are black witnesses to everything that goes on, from the scene in the barber shop where the shoe shine is in the very lower part of the frame when, when that discussion takes place, to the the woman Edna May, and I'm losing her last name, singing outside the window as um, as our heroine is missing Joe and wondering what's going to happen next to the formation of the mob and uh, another black shoe sign, seeing the mob come out and running. So that for the longest time, critics argued that this laying at once displaces but also uh, subtly depicts racism in America. In other words, it's understated but understood, given the very topic. Recently, I have read a few other... Um, a f- couple of scholars, um, really in the last seven, five, seven years, who say, oh, this is all an apology for the racism in Fritz Lang's films, that he, just like the story that Lang to- tells about, you know, Goebbels wanted him to work in the in the industry, and he immediately leaves, and, you know, via Paris, and makes his way to the United States, and that, uh, you know, he and Thea von Harbo, his wife, that she became more... Fascist, and that was one of the reasons for their split, and so these newer scholars, and you know this, try to argue that, in fact, there's this apology on the part of, to say that Lange is actually making a film about racism in America in any way, shape, or form, that he's part of the problem. I was quite shocked. I wonder what you think.
1: Yeah, I, I mean a couple of things there, Patrice. I, I think, first of all, you know, what was Lang's relationship to the Nazi party? Lange you probably, you know, heard this myth. I mean, he spoke of this uh, legendary meeting that he had with Goebbels. Um, at which time Goebbels said, we want, Hitler loves your films, we love your films. He, um, We want you to take on a leading position in the German film industry. And the logs narrative, at the same time, it's like one of his films. He says, as he's telling it, he's looking and he sees a clock outside the window. And he's thinking, oh, it's just before, well, it depends on who he was telling it to. It changed a lot. It's just before three. The bank closes at three. I've got to get out of here in time to get money so I can catch the train to leave Germany. I'm not going to do this. And so he beats a retreat in this this tale. If you, you want to... Read a novel that that, that plays plays this out in a very interesting, gripping narrative. Read Howard Rodman's book, The Destiny Express. Well, fine and good. This was sort of then, you know, a tale of a a grand, um, well, anti-fascist, right? And it's, it's a tale that Lung told again and again, and he always did it. He embellished it with very, very precise details but the details changed from one iteration to the next. And in fact, in the early 1990s, um, his passport was found. Lily Latte, his partner, sold it to um, the Stiftung Deutsche Kinemathek in Berlin. And looking at that passport, we find that Lang didn't leave Berlin in March of 1933. Back Mar- Long didn't leave, and we know that on March 28th, Long had beer with Goebbels and a number of members of the film industry, at which time Goebbels praised Long as you know one of four quintessential filmmakers that the Nazis should emulate. We know, though, in the same days, Long was one of four filmmakers who established a national so- socialist film organization. We know as well that Lang didn't leave Berlin until June. He traveled to London where he met David O. Selznick and signed a contract to go to MGM for one film. We know that he went to Paris. We, know we, we also have proof of the amount of money he exchanged. We know that he did not leave Berlin for good until late July of 1933. Now, so what does this new information tell us? Because we also know that the to the United States, becomes very politically active, very much on the left, becomes one of the founders of the Anti-Nazi Film League, Um, very important figure in that regard. Um, So what's the narrative? What's the sense you can make of that? Well, it, it could well be. Oh, and one other thing. Goebbels kept a very precise diary, sometimes as many as five, six pages a day. Um, there is no long discussion of a meeting with Lung. And, and he, he, did, he would, he would uh, write about meetings that somehow were disagreeable ones or, or difficult ones. So we have a notation on the 4th of April. It says, meeting with Fritz Lung. Nothing more than that. We know that right at the end of the month on the 31st of March, the Testament of Dr. Mabuza was banned by the Nazis because it essentially um, ended in a way that uh, was, I think, disagreeable to Goebbels. It somehow didn't. Uh, it, it, it ended in a s- s- state of chaos, ultimately, and uh, a kind of public menace that wasn't taken to task. Goebbels, on the other hand, loved M. He loved He loved. The pro, what he believed to be a pro capital punishment message of M. So I think the narrative here is this that Long, who was very much a conservative, a nationalist conservative, was tempted by Hitler, tempted by the New Order, surely very much in keeping with his wife's politics and made the films. Films he made, he made with his wife. She wrote the scripts by and large with the idea, but then decided, no, I won't. He went to the States. He then, I think, um, was very mindful of what fascism meant. And I think it's something that stayed very much with him. And in, in that regard, I think even if these you know, stories that Lung will end up telling are very self-serving, in a number of ways, he did do the right thing. Um, a little like Joe Wilson, oh, just <laughs> but I, th- I, th- I think the question, the question of lynching and this film about lynching, I mean, Long always argued that he wanted to make a film with a black man as the protagonist who was charged with rape. He only that's the only way you can make a lynching, film about lynching. Well, um, problematic premise to say the least. Um, as, you, as you note, we know, though, from studio documents, that from the, very, from the get-go, Spencer Tracy was to play Joe Wilson. There was no question about that. Now, one of the things that comes out of recent scholarship, and I, I've been reading a book by um, uh, Chris Robay entitled Left of Hollywood. He, he talks about the reception of fury among the left-wing press Um, both the white and black left-wing press. And I think this is, it's very interesting. You know, the left-wing press actually was very pleased with this film. And the argument that comes out is American audiences are what they are. They're to a great degree racist. They can't understand, they won't be able to understand the dynamics of lynching unless they have a white point of reference. But having this white point of reference, having these other kinds of, let us say, references to the number number of lynchings that take place in America and the number of lynchings that go unapprehended, or in a sense for which people aren't convicted, much less the presence of of, of, of African Americans on the periphery here in not unsubtle, in, in, in not terribly subtle ways, mind you. The left-wing press said that this was actually a good thing. The, NAACP, the head of the NAACP praised Lung for this film, and actually a number of the black um, black newspapers did as well. The, the, the New York Amsterdam Press, for instance, um, was was very much of the opinion that this 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 film did more good than bad, and in a sense allowed a certain kind of of uh, dynamic that otherwise rarely appeared in Hollywood films, Um, somehow to become present in important ways and, in a sense, leading towards a certain kind of sensitivity that otherwise would not be possible. But that this is the only kind of way to somehow package um, what what one had in mind, given the studio system, given the production code, et cetera. Let me just follow up a little bit with a question about performance and stars.
0: Novelist, poet, and playwright uh, James Baldwin praised Sylvia Sidney because he felt she was the only American film actress who reminded him of an African-American woman. He wrote, and I quote, Sylvia Sidney was the only American film actress who reminded me of a colored girl or woman, which is to say that she was the only American film actress who reminded me of reality. All of the others, without exception, were, were white, and even when they moved me, like Margaret Sullivan or Betty Davis or Carol Lombard, they moved they move me from that distance. End quote. So, what do you make of Sylvia Sidney's performance in the film? Because I think she's really important to the way that we think about the major issues yeah. in the film.
1: Well, I mean, when I think of her performance, I can't help but think of Long's mise en scène as well, the kind of poignant close ups we get of her, the way that he sculpts her physiognomy, I mean, half Romanian, half Russian. Um, there is a kind of strangeness about her that is is utterly gripping. And I think that, that, that the sculpting of the physiognomy in, in all kinds of different ways, the way in which, um, well, that marvelous scene, of course, where she's watching Joe burning and she simply comes asunder and faints. I mean, it's... it's, it's, it's actually it reminds me of what happens to Kriemhild mm. in, 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 in the Siegfried film as well. But I, th- I think to talk about, I, I would also add as a footnote, Sylvia Sidney got along very well with Long, and Long didn't get along with much of anyone. Um, Spencer Tracy really didn't like him. I mean, Henry Fonda, and you only live once, I mean, abhorred. Long, they they really he, he really could not bear him, and most of the crew was was not, not very enamored of of Long's dictatorial manner on set, but Sylvia Sidney was very much in his corner, and I think somehow they worked together particularly well, and I think somehow. I I think I'd like to you know take your question and then move it to also think about not only Sidney's performance, but the function of the character she plays within the film. I mean, in a way, you've got a problem of identification because Joe is very much, you know, someone we, we are able to align ourselves with for the first half of the movie. We're able to align ourselves with the couple for the first half of the movie. But after the burning scene in the courthouse, you know, he becomes, in a sense, the, 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 this, this, well, he dies essentially. He becomes this god awful specter, and it becomes it, it 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 becomes then the role of the of of, of the Sylvia Sidney character to not only become his advocate, but ult- ultimately to re- to provide us a reminder of what he once was, and I guess so that that we that leads us ultimately, you know, we see the way in which she is very much not wanting to be cast in the role of having to um, essentially be complicit with Joe in lynching the 22. Right. And there is a way in which we we can see how she's playing her, 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 you know, ambiguity and her trouble, you know, it becomes, you know, very visible on her face. Um, I think that leads us to this final moment of the film. And, and, you know, it's one that most people see as a function of the studio system, see as a function as the obli- of the obligatory romantic coupling, but see it as a, you know, absolute, um, a moment where the film simply, um, loses credibility. This film that has been so hard-hitting in many ways. Um, I don't know. How, how do you read the conclusion, Patrice?
0: I think of it as when I often think of conclusions. I try to think back to what the opening is, so that uh, you know how does the ending respond to the beginning. And so at the ending, you know, they seal it with a kiss. But everything that their expectations in the opening sequence, as they look through the window, and the bridal suite and um, that there's, it's kind of undercut. You're not quite clear what the future is for them. I mean, um, as I know, Fritz Lang thought the ending was coy. Many people have criticized it as studio-imposed and, as you just said, as undermining the credibility of what's gone before. But, there's, but something has changed. Um, but I, what, I don't know what you think.
1: You know, getting back to the opening sequence, one of the other things is it's, it's so erotically charged insofar as, I mean, the bed and the, the discussion about single beds, they're out. It's, um, there is a way in which, you know, we basically have, you know, deferred desire for a year, you know, cruel and unusual punishment, right? I mean, and that, that, that is really part of the package there. And that, think about what happens afterwards, that kiss under the stairwell, where we see that train whiz by, you know, it kind of, you know, think of trains in cinema and you think of the end of North by Northwest, there's a way in which human desire, which is a title of a Fritz Long film, after all, based on the Zola, um, there is a way in which the train becomes a sort of, uh, uh, almost is a mocking reminder of sexual intercourse there and this couple that is not going to be able to consummate anything at least for a year. I think this final moment, though, is... I think it's important not only to talk about that one shot, but the shots before it, because we see Joe speaking and we see the cutting is odd because we see then Sylvia Sidney behind him. Well, We we don't know he's behind him. It looks like, it looks like a shot counter shot, right? It looks like he is speaking and she is seeing him and it's a back and forth, except when we cut back, we realize that she is standing behind him. So, in a sense, her positionality there has is, 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 is been unclear. It's another one of these moments where Long Lon is setting us up, setting us up to believe that they're looking at each other when in fact they're not. So, that I think this final shot that then brings them together in a way that, you know, somehow is To a certain degree, at odds with the the logic of the cutting before, and in a certain way also, by implication, at odds with the strains that they have gone through, at odds with the very, very serious altercations they've had. Um, One could argue here that this last shot is is a remarkable exercise in spurious harmonizing, and there have been Tracks there are tracks in the film and Fritz long is a master of marks and traces. He's constantly acting like a detective and constantly forcing us in a sense to put together the pieces as well. I think if you see it in that way and don't just talk about the last shot, but in a sense, the, the shots before that as well, and that final part of the narrative as a whole, you might, yeah, maybe have to strain a little bit, but I, I think there's, there's you, you could probably make it more interesting than previous critics have. Hmm. So why don't we thank our guest,
0: but I'm sure he'd be happy to answer your question afterwards. But thank you, thank you, Rick, for coming. <laughs>